You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. All right, we're going to uh, jump into Exodus. You heard uh, Jimmy read the passage for us. I'm just going to take us through a little bit at a time. And uh, we're going to jump right in because there's a, a lot in this for us, I think. And I ran out of time this morning, so just going to get straight to it. And uh, just to set up the context for this passage that Jimmy read for you, um, we're going to go back a couple of verses, okay? So you remember from last week, Moses and Aaron on their way to Egypt. Uh, first stop is to stop by the elders of the Israelites, according to what God has told them to do. And um, they were going to share there with the elders, what God had told them, demonstrate in the signs that God is actually with them, and hope that their response would be one of faith. So this is what happens, chapter 4, verse 29 to 31. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. This is a great start for Moses and Aaron. One out of one, right? They go to the people of Israel. They tell them what God has told them to say. And, uh, and you've got to remember, at this point, as far as we can see, for the last 400 years, the people of Israel have kind of started to drift away from their roots as God's, God's people. They've started to backslide a little. And uh, maybe in Egypt, they've started to assimilate into the culture there. Remember, Egyptian religion is very important in Egyptian culture. And we know that Egyptian religion spread far and wide throughout the ancient Near East. So maybe they've started to take on some of that stuff. So there's no guarantee that when they see Moses and Aaron and hear what they have to say, that they won't just kind of like look out the side of their eyes at them and think that maybe they've lost their minds or something like that. Um, God has, for all intents and purposes, been kind of absent, at least in their experience. So Moses and Aaron turn up. We don't know what's going to happen, but we see that their response, the response of the people of Israel, is one of faith. You've got to get this right. Sometimes it's easy for us to think in the Old Testament, people obeyed laws, and in the New Testament, people lived by faith. But if you read the, the chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer to the Hebrews makes very clear that all of God's people for all of time have acted by faith. That from Abraham, first trusting God and leaving his place and going to the, the, the land that God told him to go to, that was an act of faith. It was credited to him as righteousness because he acted in faith responding to God's words. And so here we see the first response of the people of God is one of faith. They believed, Moses writes. They believed and they worshipped in verse 31. So this is a great, I mean, you, you couldn't get better than this in terms of a first foray into the mission for Moses and for Aaron. And if you're reading this for the first time and you didn't know that there was a bunch of chapters to go, you might think, well, that's it. That's the job done, right? They did what God had told them to do. The people have responded. Maybe God's just going to show up and just whip them out of there and into the promised land, right? He's got what he wanted to get, the allegiance of his people. But that's not what happens. And the big stumbling block in God's plan here is the next man that we meet, all right? So we're about to go back and 
and see Pharaoh again. So verse 1 to 4 of chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. So first stop along the way, perfect success. Second stop, complete failure in terms of bringing about the mission that God has given these guys. And, and so I, th- I think it's interesting that they go to the people of Israel and appeal to them in the name of the Lord and they have great success. People fall down and worship. And then they go to the king of Egypt and they invoke the same name, right? The name of the Lord, it is the Lord who has said, let my people go, and they get nothing from him. They get complete, just nothing. Who is this that you're talking about? Who is this guy? Never heard of this guy. In some ways, I feel like this can mirror our experience. At least this has been my experience when it comes to proclaiming the name of Jesus. Right? You have this name that's above every name. In this case, it's Yahweh. The great I am, the Lord, the sovereign king of the universe. We, we go under the banner of the name of the Lord Jesus, whose name has been made higher than every other name. We read in Philippians chapter 2. And we come with this name and we present it to people. And sometimes the response is for people to fall down and worship. Sometimes the response is for people to believe and to submit to him. Every Sunday we gather under the name of Jesus and people, I wish we would do more bowing down actually, like that would be a good thing. Bow down to the King of Kings. Worship him with all that we have. Commit ourselves to him as our Lord, Savior and King. But then sometimes we can bring the very same name, the very same gospel, the very same good news to bear with people and there's nothing No response. Who is this guy, they say. And I think, at least my experience in Australia, that is the most common response, right? Like, I would love to go to a place where you speak the name of Jesus and someone wants to fight you or kill you or put you in prison or have some kind of visceral reaction. That would be be a nice change from just, like the Australian, each to their own, I guess. That, that sucks. That response is the worst possible response. And it's the response that Moses and Aaron get. It's just, who is this guy? I don't know this Lord. I don't know this God. I don't know him. I don't recognize him. I'm not going to do what he says. Who is the Lord that I shall obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. I can't help but think of the Dr. Zeus books I read to my kids when I read that. It sounds like something he would write. I do not know him. 
I do not like green eggs and ham. No? I think that's funny. (laughs) All right, we should get a laughter track just to help me out, maybe. We could work on that, guys. So they, they have great response with the people of Israel. They have no response from Pharaoh. And the thing for us to remember in all of this is that God is not surprised by any of this. Right? God knows exactly what is going to happen on this first mission foray into Egypt. In fact, he has pretty much scripted it. He knew just so in such fine detail what would happen that it's pretty much word for word what he said would happen in chapter 3, verse 18 to 19. The elders of Israel will listen to you, right? Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord God... The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. That's exactly what's happened to the finest detail. God is not surprised by any of this. And I think this would be an encouragement to us, right? We go into every encounter with people speaking the name of Jesus, not knowing what the outcome will be. Right? We really have no idea. And because we believe that people are saved by grace and grace alone that we just sang about, we can't know. It's only our biases and presuppositions that make us go to someone who's, I don't know, got his tattoos and has been in jail thinking well, he'll never respond, but the good church boy in a cardigan will respond. That's, that's only our preconceived ideas. If we believe that God saves people by grace, unconditionally, then we have no idea what people's response is going to be. It doesn't matter what their past is. God will just reach down and save some as and in, in concert with our presentation of the gospel. And so we should go into every encounter not knowing what God will do, but we experience each encounter as a new thing, right? We don't know what's going to happen. And so we can kind of experience these things in their ups and downs, and it can either encourage us or discourage us, but God is unchanging. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows the result, the outcome of every missionary endeavor, and none of this has surprised him. So you might think, well, in that case, maybe he's, maybe he's gone ahead and he's, you know, we had this little setback, but that was just to teach them the lesson, and now he's going to step in and, and, and fix everything for them. And we might expect that to happen, but that's not what happens. In fact, the opposite happens. Things don't get better. They get much worse. So let me read just a little bit of this to you. Verse 10 and, and following Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelites' overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? 
And then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. And Pharaoh responds like every great tyrant and tells them it's their fault that this has happened to them. Lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce the full quota of bricks. Things don't get better for these people once they commit themselves to the Lord. They get much worse. So have this people, this God's people. They hear that God is coming to save them. They receive Moses and Aaron's words as gospel. They receive them and they believe. They fall down and worship and then everything gets much worse. Anyone relate to this? Anyone else? Just me? One, two, three, four. Just a, right, most of you. Okay. It's all right to admit that. It's all right to admit that unless you believe a version of Christianity that says things should get better for you after you become a Christian. I'm not sure where you find that, but it's a gospel that's preached far and wide, right? Become a Christian and things will go better for you. You get, I don't know, promotions at work, more money in the bank, better health. But that's not the gospel that we read about in the Bible. I've had people say to me in the past when I've been suffering, uh, through a prolonged season of suffering, I've had people say, claim God's promise of deliverance. Which is a fine thing to say, except you need to ask the question, what promise? Where has he promised me that I won't go through the valley of the shadow of death? See, he hasn't promised me that, actually. What he has promised me is that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with me. That's what he's promised, right? Can get an amen on that? Come on. That's what he's promised me. And so I think we need to, yeah, here's a really good thing that was told to me a little while ago. At just the right moment before I went through death's valley, and it was this. We have to, Christians, we have to, in the good seasons, in the light seasons, we have to cultivate a firm trust in God's goodness and his love so that when we go through the dark valleys, we trust him. But you have to do that in the good times. It's very difficult to cultivate that to construct that for yourself when you're in the valley. And so while you're out here, while you're in green pastures, right, kicking back by still waters, now's the time. Cultivate a deep trust in God's goodness and his love, that he'll never leave me or forsake me. Do it now so that when you enter the dark valleys, and you will, then you can hold on to the promise that he is with you, his rod and his staff. Comfort you. That's imperative. 
Because whether you like it or not, and whether you were sold the false gospel that everything gets better or not, the truth is that you will go through hard times, and whether it's cancer diagnosis or mental health issues, or whether it's persecution for your faith. Remember, Paul promises Timothy and promises us, I think, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 5, chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, 12 to 13, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He says there are going to be evil people, deceptive people, maybe even some, some of the kinds of people who will tell you that Christianity is all just fairy floss, right, and skittles. People like that are going to go from bad to worse, and you're going to be persecuted for wanting to obey the Lord Jesus. And so in that case, in the inevitability of suffering, and taking into account that Jesus says you can't be his disciple unless you take up his cross, right? Unless you take up an instrument of execution, Every day, he says, unless you do that daily, you can't be his disciple, right? So taking all these things together, we have to, have to cultivate a picture of God that is true to the Scriptures. He is good. He is powerful. He hears our prayers. He'll never leave us or forsake us. These momentary afflictions are light compared to the weight of glory that will be revealed to us. We need to know all of that now. So if we're in a season now where you're just kind of cruising and everything's pretty good, now's the time. Do it now. You see, the people of Israel haven't been cultivating this picture of God, it seems to me. Because when this happens to them and they suffer after committing themselves to God, the first thing they do is in verse 19 to 21, they say, um, they realize they were in trouble when Pharaoh said you are to produce the, the same number of bricks required for each day. And so when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting uh, to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses himself, right? He hasn't been cultivating this sense either. He hasn't spent enough time meditating on the goodness of God, and so he himself goes to God, and we're going into next week's passage here, but in verse 22 and following, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Shaking his fist. Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. That's the way someone speaks to God when they're in the midst of suffering and they haven't got a right picture of God, enough of a picture to trust him in the midst of their suffering. So here's, here's how I want us to pray, all right? And I've had occasion to encourage a bunch of people in this church over the last couple of weeks in this way. I feel like this is, might be a, a prophetic word from God for us in this place and maybe a correction to some of the 
unhelpful theology that we carry around with us. And here's how I think we should pray when we're in the midst of suffering, whether it's physical sickness, mental sickness, or some other kind of suffering. I think we should be praying, Lord, deliver me from this suffering. Lord, move. Save me. Heal me. Why not? You're powerful over all things. You created every sinew of my body. Move, heal according to your mercy and grace. And we believe that God answers those prayers and does heal people in dramatic and miraculous ways. We should be praying for deliverance and we must be praying for perseverance. Not just deliverance, heal me, save me, but also perseverance. Please help me to be patient in the midst of this suffering. I trust you that you have measured out my sufferings and that you will be with me through this. Please help me to be patient. Help me to trust you when I feel like shaking my fist at you. Help me to trust you. You are good. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We need to pray for both. If you come to anyone at this church in seeking out prayer for a time of trouble, I hope you hear both of those things. I hope you hear pleading with God to move and heal and save, and I hope you hear prayers for patience and perseverance. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say. The people of Israel, it seems to me, haven't got a strong idea of God's goodness. and turns out probably, it seems from this text, that Moses isn't there yet either. And so I want to spend the rest of our time now just focusing in on something interesting that I had not picked up on until I looked a little bit deeper into the text this past couple of weeks. And um, it's going to provide for us an opportunity to confront something that we need to confront as Christians. And it's this issue of idolatry. And when I say idolatry, a lot of us dismiss it from being important for me to deal with because idolatry is what tribes do when they worship the chicken god or something, right? That's, that's the idolatry that comes to mind, but actually I think we need to reckon with the idolatry that each one of us must deal with from day to day. And I think, where is that in this text? And it's interesting because here we get the sort of battle lines drawn out between the Lord and between uh, the Lord and Pharaoh, and that, that's going to play out ultimately in Pharaoh's destruction uh, because when a little wave breaks against a boulder, the wave loses, right? That's just, that's just what's going to happen. It's a collision course, and it's not going to go well for him. But the, the lines are drawn up here, and you see this symmetry in the text. And Moses is put together very carefully and cleverly between what the Lord says and what Pharaoh says. And so if we take a look at that, the Lord versus Pharaoh. So in, in, in 22 and 23 of chapter 4, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. Verse 10 of this passage, this is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work 
will not be reduced at all. God is calling his people to worship him. Pharaoh is calling what he sees as his people to work for him. And the interesting thing is that, that those two words are actually the same word in the original Hebrew. And in fact, right throughout these couple of chapters, you get these different words for work and service and slavery and so on uh, used, but they're all actually the same word or have the same root word, which is about worship. So um, the word translated work in verse 9 and 11 of chapter 5 is the word for worship. The word slave in verse 6 is the word worship. The word for working in verse 9 or servants in verse 15 and 16, they're all the, the word for worship. And I think this is the point. God wants his people to worship and serve and work for him. And Pharaoh wants his people to worship and serve and work for him. There's probably a, a, a similar word in English when we use the word service, right? Service can mean working for someone, and service can mean worship. We have a worship service. It's something like that in, that, in, in the Hebrew language. And I think what Moses is trying to show us here is that these two so-called gods, the living God and the one who thinks he's God, both have a claim on these people to worship him. And the question is, who are they going to worship? It's, it's a very binary thing for the, for the people of Israel. They have a choice before them. They can work for and worship the living God who has made them his firstborn son, or they can work for and worship the so-called God who is, has his own claims on them for worship and work. And you know what? The same is true for us today. We don't have a pharaoh claiming us as his possession to worship him, but we have manifold objects claiming our worship and our allegiance, right? It's not the chicken god and, right, it's not, it's not, um, it's not the kind of things that are easily dismissed. These are things that, if we're not careful, will claim us as their own. And most of them are good. Most of them are good things. So if I was going to ask you, what are, what are the things, what are the things that you're in danger of serving or worshipping or working for as your God, what, what things come to mind? Things that have a claim on you. Right, a phone. Mm-hmm. The golden calf of our generation. Yeah. And everything that the, the phone is a gateway into, right? Social media and just distraction. What, what, come on, what other things? No one's perfect here, right? Kids. Yeah. Kids. Definitely. Study, yeah, and what and what about study specifically? Is it getting good marks or getting a job or? Mm. Yeah, so it can claim your all of your energy and your attention and your yeah priority. Success, yeah. All right, it's a pretty good list. I think the point is 
that, okay, here's the picture I think we need to have, all right? I'll just work this out in my head as we go. We, we worship the living God. He is the, actually the only being in the universe who's worthy of our worship, of our service, of our everything. So he is deserving of our worship. And then because he's good, because he's a loving father, he pours out on us these gifts, these beautiful gifts. And if we're not careful, we can turn a good gift into a God. What do I mean by that? We, I mean we can take that thing and isolate it from the giver and make it something to be worshipped in its own right. Now here's the thing. This is a great saying to hang on to, all right? Just write this down if you've got a pen. The truth is, whatever we idolise, we will eventually demonise. Whatever we idolise, we will eventually demonize. That means, this is how it works out, right? If you get married, you get married to a a man, um, and that man is a good gift from God to you. Marriage is a good gift, the man is a good gift, and then suddenly you receive that gift and turn it into a God, and so you put all of your hopes and dreams into that man, You try to derive ultimate satisfaction from that man, and in so doing, you make that man an idol. That man you will end up hating. You will end up hating him. And you might stick with him, you might tolerate him, but you will end up despising him because whatever you idolize, you will demonize. Why? Because whatever you idolize is incapable of delivering on what you need them to deliver on, right? They're not God. Only God can satisfy us. Only God can provide for us that which we truly desire. And whenever we pursue those desires in other things, and you just insert all the stuff that you came up with, you will never, ever find ultimate satisfaction in any of those things, I promise you. The Rolling Stones were right. You cannot get satisfaction out of anything outside of God himself. This is why we have you know, famous people that we worship and idolize getting to the top, getting all the awards and all of the money, and then saying, oh, there's nothing here. There's nothing here that will satisfy me. Why do you have the most powerful, most famous, most rich people on earth committing suicide? It's because they figure out what God has always been telling them. Only God can satisfy us. And so to the degree in which we try to get these things to be our gods, we will destroy them. We've seen this, haven't we? Maybe you've been the victim of this. We've seen this with parents and their kids. Beautiful gifts given by God to treasure and nourish and nurture and disciple, given by God for a short period of time on loan to steward for him. And so often parents take kids, make them idols by 
putting all of their hopes and dreams into their children, and then when they don't deliver, that is, when they don't turn out to be God for them, their world falls apart. This is why parents become all passive-aggressive when their kids don't come around for lunch on Sunday, right? Their world falls apart. It's because they've idolized their kids, and the kids can't deliver on the promise. It's because kids grow up and become adults like they're meant to be. They were never meant to be gods. So no, this is actually a much bigger problem for us than it probably is for the tribes who worship the chicken god. Because God has poured out gifts on our lives. Like we are among the most luxuriant people that have ever lived. We have so much, and so we are in great danger. Jesus wasn't kidding around and playing with words when he said, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than a camel going through the eye of a needle. He wasn't just telling jokes. We're in great danger because the gifts that God gives us can so easily become idols that destroy us. I love what Tim Keller says about idols. He gives us a little definition here. Just check yourself, all right? What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. We have a great God, and he is a giver of great gifts, but woe to us if we turn those gifts into gods. What they should be for us are platforms. They're like, um, they're like uh, diving boards that should launch us into praise and worship of the giver, not the gift. That's what they're meant to be for. The reason God gave you Coke Zero is so that you would worship him. In everything that God has given you, you, that's why it's there. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God, right? Everything is an opportunity for worship. And we could save ourselves so much heartache and, and, and despair if we just stopped putting our trust in the gifts that he's given us. I'll give you two examples of how this plays out. One positive, one negative from my own experience. I only just thought of this, but um, last weekend was the beginning of the um, English Premier League season. I'm a just tragic Liverpool football club supporter. I stayed up on the Sunday night after church to watch them play the first game of the season and um, they, they conceded a goal in the last second of the game, which meant they drew the match, and it was just terrible. And I was on the phone to my friend in New South Wales, who supports them as well, and we were just like, this is the worst thing ever! And then I remembered the gospel that Jesus died for me, and that this is just football, sports, it's just a gift be enjoyed 
It's not a God, and depending on how the God has treated me is how I, I am affected to the core of my being. I can experience being passionate about something and not have it ruin me because that thing is not God to me. God is God, and he never fails me. He never concedes a goal in the last minute. He never changes. So we can, sh- we, can, we can release ourselves from so much disappointment and despair by just not putting our trust in the things that he's given us in the first place. But we can also maximize our joy by using those things in the way that they were designed to be used. So you can experience God's gifts and experience a moderate amount of joy that anyone else in the world would experience, whether they're a believer or not, or you can go to the next level of joy and, um, and enjoyment in God's gifts if you use them in the way that they were designed, that is, if it leads you to worship. You will enjoy a, a, just a, a, a delightful Coke Zero on ice with a little wedge of lemon, you will enjoy that more if the consumption of that gift leads you to worship. You can drink it on its own merit and say, I enjoyed the, the fizz and the little caffeine kick that I got and the little, that little lime, that was really, really nice, or lemon, whatever. Right? You can enjoy it for its own right, just like everyone else does, and, and the enjoyment ends at the bottom of the glass. Or it can launch you into greater enjoyment as you express praise and thanksgiving to God for giving you that gift. C.S. Lewis has this great book on the Psalms, and he said before he became a Christian, he read the Psalms, and God appeared to him like an old woman looking for compliments, right? Praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me, God says in the Psalms. And he thought, this is so, this is, God is so needy. Why is he always wanting people to praise him? But then he said, when I became a Christian, I realized that the expression, the praise, the worship completes the joy. So that if we just knew good things about God but never expressed them, then we wouldn't experience as much joy as we do when we do express them. The same is true of Coke Zero or steak or football or anything else that you enjoy. Kids, to the degree that you use them in the way that they are designed, you experience them in the way that they were designed to lead you to greater worship of the giver, you will increase your joy. So this morning, as I left for church, I had Renee and India and Judah all tucked up in bed together, and I just experienced this great sort of surge of affection for them, and I just told them, I love you so much. I left, I got halfway down the stairs, and I ran back upstairs and jumped on the bed and just nuzzled them in and said, I love you guys so much. And that was a great experience, an enjoyable experience, and an experience of God's good gift to me. But what would have been even greater would be if I said, we're going to pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving me these amazing gifts. I love you. It's clear to me in these people that you've given me that you are a good God who gives good gifts. Love you. So it seems to me that we have a choice before us 
in every gift that God gives us. We have a choice to bow down and worship that thing and therefore eventually demonize and destroy it, or we can use it the way that it was intended to be used for his glory. We're going to see the people of Israel choose to follow God, and I'm going to spoil it for you, but they choose to follow God. They express their trust in him in faith in the Passover. They follow him out of Egypt. But it is heartbreaking how quickly they resort to the idols of their hearts. The golden calf, right? 40 years in the wilderness. And we... We are prone to the same things. I believe that God has, in the new birth, given us a new heart, that in some sense he's overcome that tendency of our hearts to manufacture idols for ourselves, but we, do, we still do struggle with this. Part of overcoming the struggle is exposing it like we've done tonight. The rest of the work is continuing to help each other make all of life all about Jesus. Let me pray that that would be the case. Father, I thank you that you've shown us tonight, you've, you've shone your, your spotlight on an area of our lives uh, that we need exposed. We need it exposed because it's very easy to keep it hidden. And especially when it comes to your good gifts, it's very easy to worship them. Lord, please save us from damning your good gifts by making them God's. Please help us to enjoy your good gifts in the way that you have designed them to be enjoyed. We pray that whether we eat or drink and whatever we do, that we would do it for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.